Welcome to Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how we tell them. I'm Josina Guess. Hear Tell is a project of the Low Residency MFA program in narrative nonfiction at the University of Georgia's College of Journalism and Mass Communication. On today's show, one of our distinguished professors of practice, John T. Edge, interviews Paul Kicks about his latest book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. John T. is the host of the True South TV show, the author of the Pot Liquor Papers, and the founding director of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Paul's new book is a gripping narrative about a critical 10 weeks of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, a moment in 1963 that helped change American history. Paul visited Athens to speak to our MFA students during the fall residency. In this conversation with John T., he gets to the core of why we write, how to keep a story moving forward, how to humanize larger-than-life historical characters, and how narrative can help change the world. So glad you're with us, Paul. Thank you. Happy to be here. So those of us who attempt narrative nonfiction, there are a bunch of different reasons we use the narrative techniques, but one of them is to get people to keep turning pages, yeah. to grab hold of a reader and say, you can't quit this thing. Talk to me about how you do that. I tend to think of the writing that I do as being propulsive. I want to have a story that grabs you in some way and then just refuses to let you go. The people that I'm really taken with, Lord Hillenbrand, Seabiscuit, and then the books you wrote after that, Unbroken, Michael Lewis, especially Moneyball. I reference these writers and these authors primarily because their books are ones that I felt did not want you to ever put the book down. They wrote it intentionally. So like it's just movement, movement, movement. The greatest thing anybody can ever say to me is that read fast. Is, is there a risk in writing a book that reads fast? I think there is because it's sometimes you worry about emotional resonance. Is it actually capturing what you want? Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you do the work that's necessary, you can build in the emotional resonance so that it's done in such a way that there's a every, I think there's so many different plot points that allow for natural pauses. And in those natural pauses, we can put contextual clues as writers. We can put that sort of emotion. We can ask broader questions and have the protagonist in that story answer them. And then the story can pick up again. I think that's just sort of fundamental to storytelling. It's actually the point at which the narrative pauses that you should perhaps interject. You should perhaps interject. I mean, really, like your protagonist should be allowed to explain themselves a little bit more in those pauses. And that's natural, and then you, the story can move on from there. When, when you talk to students, you use the term for that, that nesting. That, the nested doll. Yeah. yeah. Talk, give us a quickie on that. So the nested doll is really, it is a present-day scene where there is something within that present-day scene that suggests some sort of slowing or biographical contextual clue at which point that present day scene goes back into the past kind of into an anecdote and then that anecdote itself on the backside segues into the completion of the present day scene well i mean but this idea 
in essence, you're saying you have to earn the context. You have yeah. to, or you have to earn the flashback with the context. Yeah, you have to earn the development. I, I actually read a lot of books that are like this, a lot of magazine pieces that are like this, where you just have like cool scene section break or cool pre- present chapter section break. Where it's bi- floating in the ether instead yeah. of right. Yeah, and then biographical detail for chapter or a whole section like, and why that is doesn't that work. why is that wrongheaded why does that that not serve narrative i think that what we're trying to do as narrative nonfiction writers is honestly just mirror what novelists and screenwriters are already doing they are concerned overwhelmingly with story we should be too so we should never think well now's a good time to go ahead and explain this whole life can you imagine a movie where suddenly there's like you get you get past sort of the first 20 minutes and then and then like something cool's happening to some woman say in the present day and she's the protagonist she's the hero of the movie, and then she's like, okay, well, guess what? Now let's go all the way back and let's talk about what it was like when she was five years old and bring it up to the time she was 18. So let's not write stories like that. Let's instead find ways, and a lot of times narratives themselves, if you do your work as a reporter, they suggest where you can interject these biographical details. They suggest where you can put this sort of cultural context. They suggest the moments where the the character, him or herself, would want to respond to some sort of emotional or even spiritual cue. Mm-hmm. That's where you interject that stuff. Like again, it's like always move forward. That should be the point of the I narrative. Don't, I don't think I can come up with a nested doll to make a transition to my next question. <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> and I apologize. No, um, but I'm interested in the intimacy that you bring to the page in conversation with Martin Luther King Jr. Sure. and Fred Shuttlesworth and the like. You refer to them by their first names when you're talking to people about your characters. There's an intimacy there, and, and it's jarring to hear you talk about the book. It's like, holy hell, you're saying, Martin, tell me the story, or Fred, what happened that night at Harry yeah. Belafonte's apartment? Yeah. It sounds, um, you sound too big for your britches. You sound, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, but, there's some there's a magic behind that. There's an intent behind that. Talk to me about that. So what I'm trying to do with especially with historical figures is provide some sort of texture and you are here quality to the page. So what does that mean? Well, well before that you have to go about researching this where you're asking the questions of these mythic figures. Right. As if they were alive. Like let's say just before the start of the Birmingham campaign. All right. Uh Martin How much fear did you have before the start? So I'm looking within the historical record for something where he is speaking to how afraid he was. Then he's answering my question that way. The other thing about that sort of intimacy is that it allows you to see them as fully human beings. Mm -hmm. I think especially with figures who are revered, or I would even say figures who are reviled, because this book offers both. There is a tendency for us to just keep them at a remove and not try to see them as the people that they were. But I think that a lot of times the mistake that that certain books make or, or certain writers make is to say, well, I am, you said too big for your britches. Every writer should feel that they are because otherwise, how are you going to be able to establish how fully human they are because in their fears and their vulnerabilities are their imperfections and their flaws are actually what make them relatable to other people. It is not 
their achievements. Their achievements we aspire to, but their flaws, their imperfections, that's where we see them as, ah, they're like us. There's this book I really admire by Janet Theophanis, and it's called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, and it's about the way we have, we have valorized Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks to the point where she describes them as Thanksgiving Day parade balloons floating yeah. above us, yeah. you know, as opposed to real people moving through the world. And, and that's what your book does is you put real people on the streets. Yeah, so there's this, and I'm, I, there's this book by Emerson called Representative Men, and it's fascinating because he's dealing with these massive figures of history like Plato, right, like Jesus, and he's finding ways to humanize them right. and to make them to make the reader see that yes they accomplished all i think actually the point of emerson's book is to say yes look at what they accomplished in their lives but also i want you to stare at this which is mm -hmm. they started in the same spot you did which means that you can do whatever you want in your life too what change do you want to make in the world? This is a big Whoa. thing. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's like this is the kind of thing I'm – for somebody who writes a book like this, this is the, this is the right question, I think. Yeah. What, with this book, what change do you want to make in the world? I'm, glad, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because I feel like the answer lies in the title. So much of my life over the last five years and by extension the last 20 throughout the whole of my career has been moving toward this idea that you have to actually – stare down death in some way in order to live. Now, for Fred Shuttlesworth, who's, I mean, the, the book is a, is a quote from Reverend Shuttlesworth. He meant that literally, right? But he also meant it, he also meant it, excuse me, metaphorically. And that's what I love about it because he's like, his idea was every day in every life, there is a resurrection story, right? And you only move to this position of being born again when you realize that you are meant to fulfill some sort of higher purpose and it comes from within. Every writer knows this, right? When you aren't writing, there is something that is wrong, right? To go back to Emerson. Emerson would say something like, in fact, he did say this, the kingdom of God lives within you. And what he meant by that was both had both a religious significance because he was a pastor in Boston, but it also had a secular interpretation. He meant divinity lives within you, and it is your duty as a person to honor that divine. And that calling sometimes takes the form of the work you do, the achievements you want to have in life. We have to honor that. That's why every day we have to stare down death. We have to change in some way so that we can actually live. What does narrative make possible? To ask another big, <laughs> I mean, seriously, but yeah. that's what we're all trying to figure out. Yeah. Like we, we come for a residency or we sit in this podcast studio and we talk about narrative. And ultimately, we're trying to figure out what does it make possible? Didion was right. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. It's, that's just flat out true. We have to organize our world through the stories we tell. And those stories we tell become the lives we live. You know, to think about this from a psychological perspective, there's a lot of research that now overwhelmingly shows what philosophers from, say, the school of Stoicism, or frankly, going all the way back to like the Bhagavad Gita and some of the ancient Vedic texts in India, what, the, all, what that shows. And that is our thoughts become our actions, our actions become our behaviors, and our behaviors become our lives. And if we change our thoughts, 
we can change nothing less than our lives. What are our thoughts? Our thoughts are really a story we're telling ourselves. Right. So we can change that story at any point. It's the internal monologue yes. that we're trying to capture as writers. The same thing exists within us. It, within us. So what is narrative ultimately? It is nothing less than the chance to like fully realize who you can be and in so doing, hopefully reflect something in your writing that can inspire others, that can make others think. That's, I think, the real purpose of it. You read something for us? Sure. Happy to. I would like you to read chapter 35. Okay. You game to read chapter 35? Sure. Which one is that? <laughs> I was expecting you to begin reading it. I'll hand you oh, Martin, my copy it. of your book. And, and yeah. I'd love for you to see this because like, when I was reading your book, <laughs> I not only made marginalia notes, but I started writing my own book while reading your book in the front in of what, my In what book. sense? Well, I mean, it inspired me to write about a certain scene or ah, some sort of evidence. Yeah. So I started writing. I always write with pencil. So I not only, you know, add marginalia, but I also was inspired by your book to the point where I started writing my own damn book in the front <laughs> of your book. Thank you. All right. So to read this. Yeah. All right. For seven years, Fred Shuttlesworth had fought the Birmingham Klan and Bull Connor and the racist local courts. And twice he nearly died trying to convince other black Birminghamians to fight alongside him. Few would, until now. Now, it was like a dream, Fred thought. Not only were millions of people witnessing the blatant evil of Bull Connor stuffing kids behind a fence, but back at 16th Street Baptist, away from the cattle yards, 1,000 protesters were arrested Monday, the largest single-day total ever. Fred watched them stream out of the church. At the front of the procession, Dick Gregory, the famous comedian who'd flown from Chicago just to march from 16th Street into a paddy wagon near the park. At the back, among the last to be hauled away two hours later, some white lady, some white lady from The Nation magazine, Barbara Deming. Incredible. Surreal, even. And around 60% of the protesters jailed Monday were adults. The children were getting through, Fred thought. They were convincing every black Birminghamian to demand the integration Shuttlesworth had wanted since 1956. The joy, Fred felt, it almost brought tears to his eyes when he went to Monday's mass meeting. It began at St. James, but too many people wanted in. So the meeting itself spread to Thurgood Memorial Christian Methodist Episcopalian Church, one block over on 7th Avenue North. Fred and other preachers moved between the two, but more people kept appearing until both churches were beyond capacity. So the mass meeting then spread to St. Luke's Baptist, but the same thing happened there. Too many people rushed inside. The meeting spread to St. Paul, a mass meeting held simultaneously at four churches. Fred had never seen anything like that, nor had Martin. When King at last addressed the crowd at St. James, some three hours after the meeting began, he said that what, happened, what was happening this month in Birmingham was historic. There are those who make history, King said. There are those who experience history. I don't know how many historians we have in Birmingham tonight but you will make it possible for the historians of the future to write a marvelous chapter. Never in the history of this nation have so many people been arrested for the cause of freedom and human dignity. Shuttlesworth thought, just a few more days. With all these thousands of people following Fred and Martin now, with all these millions watching the protests on the news, it would take just a few more days of pressure and white Birmingham would fold. Fred was sure of it. He wasn't the only one. Shuttlesworth walked into 16th Street Baptist Tuesday morning, May 7th, and got word from James Bevel that today's protest would be different. 
Bevel hoped to break white authorities' will for good. Today's march even carried a code name, Operation Confusion. Shuttlesworth laughed with delight when he heard the particulars and then helped Bevel and Walker and other executives shape the final dimensions of the plan. The SELC had gathered its most trusted recruits. Fifteen groups lined up within the church, each line holding at least a dozen volunteers, some up to fifty. Shuttlesworth paced from unit to unit, telling its leaders, many of them children, many of them protesters Fred himself had groomed, to prepare their minds and body for what lay ahead. A movement has a way of crescendoing, Fred said. The church doors opened earlier than expected, a little before noon. Fourteen children streamed out and surprised the cops across the street. The officers weren't anticipating any protesters before one o'clock. From the church, Shuttlesworth saw the officers on the scene radio for backup and try to keep the first group of children from marching downtown. The cops had just corralled the kids and confiscated their signs when Shuttlesworth and Bevel sent out the next group. This rushed even more cops to the scene, and now Shuttlesworth smiled, because now Operation Confusion could begin in earnest. You see, there were more protesters than those inside the church. These hundred more had discreetly, had discreetly gathered throughout the city since this morning, hiding picket signs and movement-friendly cars. And now, at the appointed time, high noon, they began to run toward downtown from all parts of the city, grabbing their signs from their cars where they'd hidden them and keeping a double-time pace until, almost as one, they emerged, 600 black protesters streaming into the white downtown. The white downtown where Bull Connor had never wanted mass demonstrations. The white downtown, where Birmingham's so-called big mules, the store owners and CEOs, were holding an emergency meeting at the Chamber of Commerce to see how they could end these protests. By marching downtown, the SELC wanted to show the big mules they could end nothing. And it was at this point, with more than 600 black protesters downtown, that Operation Confusion opened its second line of attack. Back within 16th Street Baptist, well more than 1,000 protesters watched the cops leave Kelly Ingram Park and head toward the city's core. The protesters then burst out all the doors of the church and sprinted toward downtown themselves. Fred Shuttlesworth hurried outside just to witness it all. Children and adults running around the few remaining cops, making a mad dash for downtown to join the hundreds of their brethren already there. Fred watched what seemed like the whole of the city sprinting for its core the protesters on foot, the cops chasing after them, the firefighters near the church quickly wrapping up their hoses and the trucks and then screaming away. Fred ran after all of them too, joyous at the anarchy he'd helped to create. When I got downtown, it stunned him. Some 4,000 protesters, maybe more, on the sidewalks, on the streets, sitting in the aisles of downtown stores, standing outside them with picket signs, all of these people singing freedom songs. And even better, the big, mule, the big mules emerging from their chamber meeting, coming out for their lunch break and seeing, quote, square blocks of Negroes, a veritable sea of black faces, as one writer later put it. It was too perfect. And the cops can't do anything, Fred thought. They couldn't break up the crowd for the mass of people. They couldn't arrest that mass because the jails were already full. Fred moved among the protesters, barked instructions to stay strong, stay nonviolent, saw a cop on a motorcycle overturn his bike, just trying to maneuver the thing among the masses, while all those people sang, we shall overcome. Martin has to see this, Fred thought. He rushed as quickly, he rushed as, quickly as he could back to the Gaston Motel. He sprinted up to room 30, where he saw King and Abernathy. Martin, this is it. You need to come out. They got in a car and headed back downtown, Fred narrating as they drove. 
He had never witnessed anything like it, not just the mass of black protesters, but the impotence of white authority. All we got to do, Fred said to Martin in the car, Fred's finger stabbing the air, is hold it like this for a few more days. A few more days and they would win everything. Martin nodded and smiled. Thank you. So you're telling a tight story, 10 weeks. 10 weeks. Um, and there's this sprawling cast of characters that could be a part of this story. Yeah. How did you audition your characters? How did you cast your characters for the story? That's a great question. What I was saying a moment ago about knowing that there's an underlying narrative, I was like, okay, there is a narrative that runs through this. There are sort of... Uh, waves, right? There's crests and falls throughout these 10 weeks. Who can best personify that crest at that moment? Who can best personify that fall at that next moment, right? Uh, and so I intentionally wrote the book, not only thinking about it having been as tightly focused as possible, but then, and this chapter is an indication of this, trying to root each chapter almost in the perspective of an antagonist or a protagonist within the book. Because that way, it's not just narrative, but it's sort of perspective, right? It's like it's POV, right? Hopefully that way the reader's going to get that much more intimately connected with the characters. A question that I've gotten in the past is how did I do that? I got lucky. The civil rights canon is probably the richest outside of the Civil War. So there was no shortage of material on Fred Shuttlesworth, on King, on Wyatt Walker, on James Bevel. Right? I could not only establish what they did across those 10 weeks, but I could also get inside their heads because they had talked so much about it. They had written books about it. They had been interviewed about it. Other writers had written other books about it. Um, that, was the, that, was the, that was the key, I think. And when, once I realized in the reporting, oh, I can do something special here. I can really, like, I can turn this into something that is, to go back to what we were saying earlier, like what I call pure story, right? And that was the goal the whole time. We've talked again and again over the course of this conversation about interior monologue, about what's going on in somebody's head that you gain access to in this book. Um, the thing I like about your newsletter is you're offering those of us who read it you know, access to what's going on inside your head, what you're reading, what you're pondering, what you're trying to figure out as a writer Talk to me about that newsletter because I really genuinely admire the hell out of it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. So it's called This Week Paul Likes, and the idea behind it is every week I'm just going to tell you what I like, right, like what I'm reading. But it's evolved to the point where it's like how can I be of service to other writers? And I can be of service of other writers by trying to tell them, uh, okay, this is what I – this is why – not just this is the story that I like, but this is why I like it, and this is – how I think it works as well as it does. So, this is also, it gets me thinking about X and it gets me thinking about yeah. Y. And I mean, I almost feel like I have access to the gears turning in your head. Yeah, well, thank you. Because I mean, I, I firmly believe that the more idiosyncratic I can make something, the more universal its appeal. So that means when I'm writing that newsletter, and I mean, I've talked about like getting laid off in that newsletter. I've talked about the times that when I've gone out on my own, uh, as my own boss, like the money was tight, right? Like I'm unafraid. Well, not, I am afraid to go there, but I do choose to go there in the end because I'm like, well, there's probably somebody that's going through something similar. I do the same thing when something good happens, right? I got a killer review in the New York Times. It was amazing. Way better than I could have possibly imagined for this book. But you know what I wrote about? I wrote about Eddie Vedder that week because the first thing I had in mind was how 
all fame is fleeting. And Eddie knew that. Eddie, Eddie won this Grammy, I think, when Vitology came out. And he pissed off everybody at the Grammys because he said, I don't know what this means. I don't think it means anything. And they thought it was so disrespectful. But I actually realized Eddie Vedder was establishing something that's very, very deep. Creators, writers, artists, musicians, we don't create for the result. We create because we love it. Fall in love with the process. And that's actually the result that you want. Thank you, Paul Kicks. Thank you. That was John T. Edge interviewing Paul Kicks about his latest book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. I love this. We create because we love it. Fall in love with the process, and that's actually the result that you want. Thanks for listening to Hear Tell. I'm Josina Guess, class of 2023. We've included the link to Paul Kicks' newsletter, This Week Paul Likes, in our show notes. This show was produced by Diana Keough, class of 2021, and edited by Amy Padula, class of 2024. Many thanks to director Moni Basu for nurturing this writing program and this podcast. We hope you'll listen back to earlier episodes. Keep asking good questions and keep writing for the love of it.